Welcome to another episode of Climate Tracker Week, where we hear stories that matter to young climate journalists around the world. I'm your host, Chris Wright. In this episode, we talk to Lynn Ochoenchek, a journalist and a youth leader from Thailand. She started her career in journalism at the age of 18 and shared why she believes so strongly that it's important to highlight Indigenous communities in writing great climate stories. Take a listen. Hi, Lynn. How are you doing? I'm good. How about you, Chris? Good, good. It's raining a little bit outside here. What's it like where you are? It's very hot and the city looks foggy, but it's just really air pollution. (laughs) And is that the city of Bangkok? Yes, that is. All right. And is that kind of normal or pretty much the same as most days? Um, it depends on the day, but lately it's, it's been most days. Sometimes oh. you can't really distinguish anymore. Okay. And, and Lynn, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Um, I, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Uh, so Lynn, what is your story? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I guess I could start with where I got into environmental things or journalism or activism, but I'd say a lot of what's been happening lately stem from my climate strike. In um, 2019, early 2019, and before then I had been writing about the environment um, for two, three years. That was during my time in university, which um, I graduated one year ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Throughout university, I had been writing a lot about social and environmental issues, sometimes my own personal blogs or sometimes doing uh, internships at newspapers and organizations, um, NGOs like Greenpeace, So I built up from then, you know, into really learning more about the environments and the politics around it or the science around it. And then later, I, later after I've been writing for a while, which I I think I, I began writing about these issues because I, I deeply cared about the environment and I could see the destruction going on around me. Um, and I figured, okay, what's the best way I can help out? And I felt like writing was my, my biggest strength. So mm. I wrote about these issues, hoping that it would make people care more about it until I realized that, you know, whoever is going to click on an article that says 50 ways to save the planet is, is obviously someone who already cares about the environment and, started realizing that perhaps that wasn't the best way to change behavior because you're, Mm. you're just talking to the same people who already agree. And so um, in 2019, when the global climate strike happened, um, that really inspired me to take some kind of hands-on field action. And so I organized my own climate strike in Thailand, which was the first of its kind in the country. Um, as, as a young person and also um, female young activists talking about climate issues. Surprisingly, that was very new to Thailand. And so it gained a lot of traction um, in the media. Um, 
And that was how I got some exposure in, in the environmental field in, in Thailand. And that's where I've, I've begun a lot of my environmental career, um, mainly in communications. And, and, and I've just started to see my role, um, although I've, I've been very interested about the environment and, and the science of it and ecology and all that, but I've really seen my role as a communicator and how, um, how I can help all these organizations or, or grassroots initiatives really communicate and market themselves because oftentimes, you know, there are so many people already doing such great things. What they need is, is some bit of support. And, and that support, I believe, can come from, you know, just sharing these stories and, and showing other people what great solutions and initiatives there are out there. And I'm sure Thailand's a country with so many kind of wonderful, I guess, indigenous solutions or, or indigenous practices that, you know, modern scientists are probably reflecting on and saying, wow, this is, this is really interesting way of doing things. And maybe we should think about it a little bit more. Do you find pride in, in being Thai uh, with kind of some of the narratives around climate change? I, I definitely do find pride in being Thai just, just overall. Um, there's a lot of culture and diversity here and a lot that I, I am very happy to have experienced. Um, but in terms of indigenous um, practices or, or values, beliefs, beauty, uh, that is something that I've gotten very fascinated in, but have yet to really study and, and learn more about, which is something I'm, I'm starting to, to focus myself on more with what I'm writing and also trying to create maybe a video project on it as well. But um, there's a lot I'd love to learn when it comes to climate. There's a lot there in, in store in these indigenous practices with agriculture. Thailand is, is very heavily dependent on agriculture in, in you know, local livelihoods, but also our exports, our economy, everything is, is very based on that. But it's a shame that there are a lot of malpractices being done. And, and if only we can change that, I think it would revolutionize just our economy and, and our, um, the livelihoods for, for the majority of the population who, who do work in the um, agricultural sector sector and as as you may know you know in terms of climate solutions our land use and agriculture the we can we can really do a lot to change that to change our carbon um, emissions and and when it comes to indigenous practices I used to be very skeptical about it you know I, I think I used to be a lot like oh what is this um you know, it's like talking about Chinese traditional medicine to my mm. dad. And he's, he really, um, he really believes in, in Chinese medicine. And for me, when I was younger, I was like, oh, dad, this is silly. Um, why, why make me eat all these things? I'll just go take a, take a headache pill. But <laughs> the more I learn about it, the more it's, it's just so fascinating. You know, these very natural healing um, properties so in the same way with, with medicine, you know, there's all these practices for agriculture and, and just ways to coexist with, um, with nature that, that indigenous groups um, or people living in, in more traditional uh, ways really know how to, to 
uh, utilize these resources well. Yeah, that's that's beautiful, and and I'm guessing you've had to eat some pretty funky things um, from your、I、dad、have. over the years, right? Yes, <laughs> I still do not enjoy it. What's the kind of the weirdest thing you've had to eat? Ah.、Uh, It's mostly herbal teas, so they're not all really all that weird. They to me, they just taste quite bad. Okay. <laughs> and I, yeah, I used to just really hate it, but but learning more about it now, I'm trying to drink more of it. But I can't <laughs> deny that I still really don't like the taste of it. There's this um beautiful scene in um uh Minari, which is nominated for an Academy Award this year. It's a it's a Korean American film. And there's this beautiful scene where the Korean grandma comes over and gives the kind of the young grandson who grew up in 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 America this stew to drink every night, and it's got like deer antlers, bones crushed in it, and it's just like this really funny scene where the young boy is like trying to、uh, accept his kind of grandma's really old school traditional kind of healing、uh, yeah. remedies, and I, I'm just kind of like imagining that again. <laughs> yeah, I I think I mean there's there's a again there's there's a few implications in that you know there there are great traditional medicinal、um, healing substances but also you you've got that other side of like, illegal wildlife trade、mm. so you know with, with rhino horns or, or shark fin that is that is. Yeah, there's there's a fine line between that that、uh, people should learn about. Which you know, while my dad has all these great Chinese medicines, there is also that other part that he still is yet to understand.、Um, and it's it's good to distinguish between that as well. Yeah, I, absolutely, absolutely, and and but I think it's kind of an interesting debate, right? Because often those types of products that we now see as Kind of clear environmental no-nos、uh, are often things that Western countries were very interested in many years ago.、Mm. Um, I, I was learning a little bit about you know Australia and New Zealand, basically kind of in the early colonial periods of of our histories in the kind of nineteen hundreds, eighteen hundreds. We basically kind of decimated the whaling popul the whale populations of the Southern Oceans,、um, and that was all kind of you know at the time it all sounded good and it was to kind of You, you know, whale bones were used for making corsets and making kind of all these things. And now,、um, Australia and New Zealand, on the international stage, are some of the kind of biggest,、um, I guess, advocates against、um, Japan's interests in in whaling around the world. So it's it's just kind of it. I find sometimes there's these interesting histories to what we consider environmentally good and and bad at the moment. And I find that Asian countries are often kind of in this. Very interesting position where things that many Asian cultures have done for a long time are suddenly being kind of considered as bad,、um, when you know Western cultures maybe at one time、uh, were very interested in it and were, were kind of actively pursuing that same thing, right?、Mm-hmm. Anyhow, that was just a thought from me.、Um, let's jump back into you.、Uh, you interestingly talked about the fact that you are both. An activist and a journalist, and I understand you kind of have a bit of a process there where you sometimes kind of change your name depending on your identity. Can you talk me through that? So, in just to give a little context, Thai people have very long names. 
my name is Nanti Shao Zerun Shai. So we we depend a lot on on nicknames. Um, we refer to most people unless you're you're ref, referring to them in like a formal article. We refer to our friends and family in, in nicknames. And so my my nickname is actually Ling, um, but that for a lot of my friends is a bit harder to pronounce. I just use Lin. <laughs> and um, so when it comes to writing, I, I writing articles for newspapers or or opinion uh, or feature articles, I usually use my my full name, which is Nanti Shao Zhen Chai because that, that is, you know, my, my legal birth name and, and um, that just seems more and more fit for, for work-related purposes. But um, when it comes to activism where I, I do my climate strikes and I, get, I, I have to do interviews, um, and so my nickname is, is generally more appealing. You know, when, when Thai people read the article, it's a lot of it is, is more casual. Um, they would include my nickname in there. So some articles would just use my nickname alone. Some articles would include my full name and then use my nickname on the side and constantly refer to me by that throughout the article. And it's just, it's just easily, uh, more easy to remember and, um, and gives you some sort of character, I guess. Um, in, in the same way that a lot of Western names are, are duplicated, I think, um, for my nickname in, in Thai. Um, it's actually Chinese nickname, by the way. So it, it's got a little bit more of character into it. Um, when people see you as this um, activist, uh, this, this character to follow, the nickname is, is also more appealing than, than having a full formal name. Hmm, okay, interesting. I, I'd love to kind of dive in a little bit more. It sounds like the the name is is the name changing is far more cultural than it necessarily is kind of politically or, or journalistically but what is it like being a journalist in thailand right now being a journalist is very dangerous it actually depends a lot a lot on what you report on but because of our political situation it's just become very dangerous to report on um, social issues and more increasingly environmental issues. Um, with the social is issues, you know, you've got laws like Les Majest um, where you can't uh, criticize the monarchy, but then you've also got this, um, the, the government is, it was um, basically, <laughs> it's considered to be elected uh, an elected government, um, but the, this government right now was in previously the the military who who did a coup on the previous government. It's a bit confusing, but basically the government we have right now is a former military. Um, but but we consider ourselves as like a constitutional monarchy country. So there's a lot of a lot of implications to that. Um, they use a lot of internet laws to, to restrict what you say, um, cyber, cyber laws. Um, and, you know, even if you don't, if you don't breach some kind of law, they, a lot of times 
if they're targeting you as a journalist, they will find the excuses to get you. Um, but so, of course, most news is okay. But when it comes to political news, there's been a lot of bias in, in various media, you know, portraying the government better. But then there's also a lot of really great and honest media out there who, who are reporting um, all these protests and all the actions from police against the protesters, um, but also portraying both sides of the story. Although right now, <laughs> the, the government side of the story is is not looking so great because I mean, it's, it's just the actions they're doing. Um, so that's the political side of things um, where pro-democracy protesters are, are protesting a lot, are, are standing up more right now um, to the government. But when mm. it comes to uh, environmental issues, I'd say that um, in, in my opinion, back then, back then as in um, maybe five years ago, or, or in, in this decade um, until one or two years ago. <laughs> um, environmental sh issues have, have mostly been seen as, you know, wildlife, trees, animals. So it's, it's a very, you know, unlike in, in the US, environmental issues have, have mainly been very apolitical. It just seems like a neutral issue that some everyone would agree on, like, oh, of course we should have more trees. And then it's more of like the, the corporates groups who are, who seem like the bad guys and, and everyone seems to, the, the public seems to agree on that. But lately, um, because there has been more of a visible and, and a visible link between environmental and social issues, this, this kind of intersection that the public who don't maybe before did not understand it so well, now see the link between these two topics. Um, so it's, it's gaining more traction and it's becoming more political. If I can give you an example, it's, it's coming back to the indigenous um, uh, rights issues where, um, and, and this is also what, what is happening around the world, I believe is, is that a lot of indigenous groups or minority groups are being pushed out of their homes, their natural habitats. You know, a lot of them are forest dwellers um, and they're being forced out, some of them violently as well by um, so-called conservationists or in, in Thailand specifically, it's a lot of um, national park authorities because they're, like they've just proposed new laws to declare this place a protected area. And so they are doing reforestation or, um, or yeah, adding, adding more green to it and, and um, protecting the area more. But to do that, they are pushing out a lot of communities that have been living there for a very long time already and um, calling them encroachers to the area or accusing them of, of stealing, um, these resources from the forest. Um, and it's not like they do it just by telling them off or, or, you know, providing the legal reasons for it. But a lot of them are, you know, they're just straight up burning down th their houses and killing them. Um, so there's been a lot of conflict with that lately and more and more people are becoming more aware of it and, and seeing, understanding that um, how, how these environmental issues affect 
human rights. And because um, it's got such a human face to it, it's gaining a lot more traction in, in Thailand because I think Thai, emotion, uh, Thai people are, are very emotional. Thai people really love that kind of, you know, human face and, and human interest, emotion, um, and also some like drama and, and, you know, juicy bits to the story rather than, than trees that, that they, they might not see value or, or life to. Yeah. It's, it sounds like a, a challenging contrast is I'm guessing kind of, you know, as these indigenous peoples kind of get pushed aside, uh, would it often be in the name of, of some sort of great sustainability plan in the name of some sort of like grand proposal to conserve these areas or this kind of wonderful sounding proposal to um, kind of keep the, the kind of the countryside beautiful? Um, or is it sometimes also in the kind of grand scheme of, of expanding, you know, development and, and kind of big apartment buildings and shopping malls and such? There's actually both going on. Um, late, uh, early, early last year, there was um, a lot to do with the industrial expansion. There's a new project going on in, in Thailand called the EEC or the Eastern Economic Corridor or something. But yeah, it's called the EEC Development Zone and they're expanding industrial zones um, across various parts of Thailand. And a big issue that's come up is that it's, it's just wiping off this community. Not so much wiping off, but they're going to build factories and power plants by this coastal community, which the livelihoods of, of the people there depend a lot on fisheries and the ocean and, and by the industry expanding on there, they would take a lot of that away. But of course you've got, you know, great PR, saying, oh, you've got sustainable development and this is going to bring, you know, great development to the country, economic growth and all. And um, thankfully, we've got some great um, reporters or environmental groups, lawyers, you know, who, who are fighting against this, helping the communities themselves and, and grassroots initiatives stand up and then say like this is not right this is not the way we want to develop and and there's no kind of public participation in that not asking the people what do you want to do with this with with your home um are you okay with us coming into here and and developing all these um things we believe would bring economic prosperity um on the other side there's the 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 part where they're they're pushing away local communities in the name of conservation. So to a lot of people who might be um, might be pro on environments but do not know so much about the, the underlying issues, they might see these these projects as as wonderful, progressive because they're declaring more protected areas, increasing more um, forest cover, but um, again, with a lot of great PR, you know, it, it just seems like the government is, is doing great things, but it's just without consideration to, to the lives that are, are being, uh, are being threatened by this, this kind of conservation. It's, it's basically, um, conservation that's just inclusive of, of the communities that are involved and, um, in consider 
with within consideration to the the traditional way of living. Interesting. And and Lynn, by the way, you're describing the some of the stories you're looking at and some of your kind of concerns. It it sounds somewhat that a lot of these stories are very kind of locally focused. And and I say that in terms of a lot of climate reporting over the last 10, 15 years has talked about things like carbon emissions, which uh, you know, are, are more discussed in the context of, of some sort of global impact rather than a local impact. Um, or they talk about rising sea levels affecting people around the world or, or kind of journalists in the United States might talk about you know, how flooding and coastal erosion is affecting people in Bangladesh. So it's often climate change is reported on as, as kind of a bit of an international story. Uh, but it sounds like in your reporting, you're doing a lot of kind of locally focused stories. Is, is that something that you think about? Is that something that is kind of just a natural way you wanted to approach your work? Yeah, I feel like in, in trying to get people to care about these issues and especially through writing or, or journalism, uh, people have different priorities. You know, it's people as in, in people of all demographics. We have different jobs, different things to care about, and not all of them related to the environment. And so when you want people to care about climate change and act on it, you really have to direct them to why a certain topic matters directly to them. If you talk about you know, climate change, wildfires in Australia, and you're trying to convince people in Thailand why it matters so much, it's, it's very unlikely that they would, you know, maybe they, they would um, care about it in, in terms of sympathy and like, oh my God, this is so sad, but it's, it's not going to really m make them change their, their life, lifestyle or, or mindset because they just don't see why it's relevant to them. Like, why should I care? Why should I invest my time and headspace into caring about this thing that doesn't affect me at all. And unless you're a, like a philanthropist or, or a, a, a passionate advocate, then there's just really no incentive for you to, to invest your, your mental and, and, and financial or time um, effort in it. So that's why I try to with, with every hook of a story I write, I, I really try to consider a wider demographic. I know that in, in communications, you can't always do that. You can't always target the general public. But I find that, you know, if, if you can link anything to, to anyone, I think that, that makes the subject so much more interesting because it, uh, in the end, I, I do think that everything is relevant to everyone. It's just the extent of, of more or less. Um, but yeah, I think it's, if, if, you can, if you can try to hook you know, a topic to, okay, why does this directly matter to me? How does this affect me directly and, and visibly, tangibly? and also what I can do about it, it's, it's more likely to retain their attention and, and also result in some sort of awareness or action change. And, and that is, 
is what I see to be the goal of, of why I do writing or why I um, try to pursue journalism. And what is the change, maybe the mindset change, maybe the policy change that right now you're hoping to inspire? Um, there are a lot of a lot of things that can be changed to address our environmental issues right now, but but just in, in this capacity that I have right now, I, I think individual awareness is very important. Um, if, if you think a lot about, if you think about a lot of environmental issues worldwide and on various levels, a lot of it boils down to just education, um, individual awareness about what this thing is and, and the people that surround it. And that education will lead to empathy. So um, say I'm, I'm working on this project right now, which traces the supply chain of things. And that, that comes from the, the, the idea that, you know, if, if one person knows about where this item comes from and where it goes to and the people that it affects, perhaps they would be more, more considerate of their consumption. And hopefully that would, you know, on a bigger scale with, with a mass of people, hopefully that would impact the larger industry because, you know, supply influences, uh, I mean, demand influences supply and vice versa. Yeah, of course. What's one of the things that you're looking at? Like you said, the supply chains of things. I'd love to know what's one of the things. Um, a, a project I'm working on right now is, is to make a video about um, farmed shrimp. So tracing the okay. supply chain of farm shrimp. And that explores, you know, not just the environmental impacts of it, but the social, socioeconomic impacts. And I'm guessing there's probably, you know, fishing communities and Thai fishermen all around the world doing that, right? Yeah. And I, I think... Um, in the end, it, it can be linked back to um, a, a larger scale of like how, you know, it's, it's not just about these surface environmental issues, but coming down to how uh, it's coming down to social development, you know, how, how community development or sustainable livelihoods are actually key to solving environmental issues, the need for public participation or, or community empowerment is the long-term solution to, to solving environmental issues. Interesting. And, and Lynn, I'd love to kind of get your broad perspective. Obviously Thailand's in the news a lot lately and, and probably not for a lot of things that you wish it was in the news for. Um, but, you know, the kind of the Western media perspective on a country is very, seldomly reflective of the reality or, or seldomly reflective of, of how people feel about it. Do you have kind of hope for your own future as a, as a climate reporter or, or as an activist in Thailand? Yes, um, I do. It's, it's been a real learning curve in the past one year or two years of doing climate activism and also graduating from university. And, and getting more in, into the field. Um, and 
At first, I, I did envision myself to be a journalist in Thailand, but now I'm increasingly I'm, I'm seeing my role as, you know, someone who understands various dimensions and demographics. I, I think a lot of journalists might do might, might be more useful in the world as, as someone reporting to Thai people about the Thai context. But I, I do really see myself as like the middleman between that, where I understand both um, the, the Thai local context, but also how the Western perception is or, or how the Western context and situation is and, and really try to mediate between that. How do I communicate and share about Thailand to a Western audience and share about the Western world to the Thai or Asian audience, um, you know, of like, what are the solutions from here that the other side could adapt, uh, adopt or, or, um, or these issues that we're facing um, and, and also trying to uh, clarify misunderstandings about both sides of the world. Um, not just in terms of information, but also the cultural, the cultural context to receiving information. For example, like you know, in, in the West, it might work well with a documentary where you throw a hard, a bunch of hard facts in there, and then if you inform people enough, and they would begin caring, and if if they know enough about the bad practices, maybe they would change their habits. But then Thai people, you know, they're as as the reputation might go. We're very friendly, light, light-hearted, easygoing, um, you know, laid back. Like everything is my bendai, my bendai is like, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, and so when you throw, you know, hard-hitting facts in, like, oh, uh, at first how I approached this was that I give them facts like, oh my god, Bangkok is gonna be underwater by 2050, and I had hoped that that would scare people and make them care. But and they said my pen died? <laughs> it was not so much my pen died, but it was like, well, they either they like panic so much so they just turn off. Hmm. It, and it just becomes like, okay, bliss is ignorance, I guess. Oh my God, so scary. But well, what are we going to do about it? I guess let's just my pen die. <laughs> um, and, and leave it to someone else. Hopefully the government will do something about it. Hopefully someone will do something about it. Um, and so... In, in the work I've been doing in the past year is, is um, really working with um, a few celebrities and organizations and coming up with more creative ways to communicate these kinds of issues um, through, you know, enter entertaining content, through humor and, and very digestible information and, and practical calls to action that, that um, the, the everyday consumer or, or general public can really relate to and understand and even and want to digest, you know. Mm. Well, I, I think it's kind of incredible that you're so conscious about your identity and about the way that kind of you want to approach even engaging with people um, as opposed to just kind of the topics you want to write about or the, the, the places you want to get published. Um, so thank you so much for this conversation. And, and I, I really kind of, I'm really interested to see some of the creative approaches you're interested in applying in the future. And, and you said, obviously, a lot of that will be kind of focused on a Thai audience, but I, I, I'm kind of looking forward to 
um, trying to engage with, with whatever you're able to produce that is in that outwardly focused manner that you talked about. Um, because I think that kind of there's such a, an incredible opportunity to kind of really reshape how people see each other around the world. And, and it sounds like you're one of the people who could help do that, um, particularly in Thailand. So uh, Lynn, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you very much. It was such a pleasure talking to you. And that's it for the show. Uh, I'm Chris Wright, as usual, and this is Climate Tracker Weekly. For comments, suggestions, and feedback, you can email us at podcast at climatetracker.org. Join us again next time for yet another episode of Climate Tracker Weekly, where we find another journalist, another location, and have another hopefully interesting conversation. See you then. <laughs>